Army veteran Jim Shingleton shares the story of his introduction to warfare in Vietnam on December 23, 1966. He, along with 27 other radio-trained operators, uh, left Fort Ord and they flew to Vietnam and they arrived the next day. Fortunately for him, by providence, he got sick on the flight. And so when he landed in the staging area, he was not able to go forward to the operating base and begin to perform his function as a radio-trained operator. Something happened, though, in between that really changed his life. A week later, after he was taken out to the forward operating base, he, he found as he landed there that 26 of his fellow soldiers, whom he left Fort Ord with the week before, had all been killed in battle. Only Singleton and one other RTO was alive, and he was only alive because he had been back in the barracks sick. You know, the point of the story is to say that the battlefield was an extremely dangerous place for all soldiers, but particularly those who are known as radio-trained operators. It's been said that the life expectancy of an RTO during Vietnam was all of six minutes. Why? The reason is because the RTO carried a radio on his back with an antenna that stuck way up into the sky so that the enemy could see them from almost anywhere. Having that radio on his back was like having an orange bullseye painted upon it because the strategy of the enemy to defeat the army forces was to take out the RTO. And the reason why they were to take out the RTO is because wherever the RTO was, was where the leader was, the lieutenant was. So to take out the RTO was to take out the leadership. The entire strategy is you defeat the army by taking out the leadership, and the tactic is you take out the leadership by taking out the radio operator. You see, the point of it is this is how attacks work, how... Um, uh, warfare is waged, not just in military realm, but in spiritual realm. As you think about who is the brunt of the attack in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think we can make the case from Scripture that the brunt of the force of the attack is the leadership. It's the leadership. It might feel strange to us as we come to the end of the list of the qualifications here for eldership, that we have a very negative turn in our text. Because really what is in the limelight or the spotlight in verse 6 and 7 is no longer the man, but the devil. It's no longer the man, it's the devil. And so we've entitled this message, A Hedge Against Spiritual or Satanic Attack. Because as Paul winds down Uh, his conclusion about the qualifications of elders, he highlights the importance of these qualifications as a means of protecting the man, and I would say beyond him, the congregation from satanic attack. And so bound up with the exposition of the final qualifications here for the eldership is a very sobering message. Watch out. Watch out. Because the person who would fill this office is a person 
who willfully and knowingly subjects himself to dangerous spiritual demonic attack. So far in this message, I've tried to motivate the men of this congregation to long for this office. And our initial message was long for this office because this is an office of excellence. This is an excellent office, and because of that, Paul says you ought to want to seek it. I've also attempted to motivate the men of this congregation to consider calling to this office because the qualifications are excellent. Who wouldn't want to be characterized by all the things that the Apostle Paul says an elder should be characterized by? The question answers itself because it's not just that we ought to desire or some men ought to desire this, but we've noticed throughout that a fair number of the qualifications for the office of elder are commanded, not just for men, but for all of the people of God. But particularly in the context of expounding upon the eldership, we've emphasized the excellence of these qualifications and therefore the duty and the moral necessity of longing to seek after these. But as we come to the end of the exposition of the qualifications, we can see here that there's a message of warning. If after hearing the exposition of the qualifications of this office and the excellence of this office, and you still long for this office, here the Apostle Paul leaves you with a very sobering message. And that is that the call to eldership comes with a bright spiritual orange bullseye upon your back. And it will be there until you cease serving in this office. So how do we deal with that? The Apostle Paul says, well, the the bullseye will never come off, but here's the thing. If you come into this office with two of these qualifications that are not in place, you put yourself in a tremendously spiritually dangerous position, and not just yourself, but everybody else in the congregation. And so the very sobering call of our text this morning is to put a hedge around yourself to prevent satanic attack, And that hedge is this, no immature believer or any man with a hidden life ought to seek the eldership in the church because they place themselves right in the way of satanic attack. I'll repeat it again. No immature believer or any man with a hidden life must seek the eldership because if they do, it puts them directly in the way of satanic attack and spiritual ruin. So here's two of the things the Apostle Paul says that are a part of how we hedge in that man and beyond that, how we hedge in the church. And the first of all, we don't elect novices to the office of elder. Verse 6 says, and not a new convert. Not a new convert. And I'm sure all of you, even if you never knew what the Greek word was here, know what this word is because it's neophatos, which is the same word we get neophyte from in English. And I would venture to say that most people here this morning have some sense of what a neophyte is, at least as we understand it in English. A neophyte, in almost any English dictionary you look it up in, basically has as its opening entry line someone who's new to a skill or a belief or an occupation. Somebody who's new to something. And I would say we tend to use this in a pejorative way also, It's a way to demean or to diminish a person by saying, he's just a neophyte. 
And what we mean is somebody who's unskilled in understanding or ability. But the word comes uh, from nature. It literally means to, to plant a new seed. And so it has the sense of, of planting grass to it. I don't know if you ever planted grass in your yard, but typically when you plant grass in your yard and it's a bare area, you're supposed to rope it off so that people and animals don't go in the grass because since the grass is too new and it's too immature, it doesn't take root. And if you trample upon it, it just tears it up. That's the same idea behind the use here, but, but it's brought into the spiritual realm. Although Jesus doesn't use the word, he, he uses the concept. In John 15, he, he talks about himself being the vine, and, and we are the branches. And as that vine grows, it, 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 the branches grow, they, they need to be pruned and trimmed. And the whole purpose is so that over time, they may be made mature and grow strong and healthy and, and full of vitality so much they begin to, to bear fruit. But this is the thing with the neophyte. They're in a great place. And I don't want to diminish the significance of the place or the station of the neophyte. Any newly converted Christian is in a place that is 100% better off than they were in before. That goes. Uh, that needs to be said. Any neophyte is in 100% better place and condition than they were before they were converted. We should appreciate some of the conditions or some of the situation of the neophyte. The neophyte is a justified person. And in the moment of your justification, the moment you exercise faith in Jesus Christ, you are as justified as you ever will be in all eternity. You will never grow in your justification. In that moment, you are fully and completely justified. The neophyte is somebody who's been regenerated and given a new heart by grace. And the fact is you will never be more regenerated in, than you are in that moment the rest of your life, even into eternity. That new heart will never fade. In the moment of salvation, you are as adopted and sealed by the Spirit of God as you ever will be. The point here is not to diminish the significance and the importance and, and the value of the neophyte, the point is to say, the neophyte needs to be left alone so they can grow. The neophyte need not be put into positions which will present the potential and the danger of spiritual harm. Remember here, he's talking about leadership and not just leadership in general. He's talking about leadership in the church. So I'd point out for us this morning that Paul is speaking about eldership and spiritual rule. He's not speaking of every kind of spiritual leadership. The neophyte is not somehow unqualified for spiritual rule in his home or in his marriage just because he's a new believer. God's not taking that away from him. No, every neophyte, every newly converted man is to be the spiritual head and ruler of his home. That is never taken away. But the point here that the Apostle Paul is saying, there is a specific sphere, an application of spiritual leadership and rule that the neophyte shouldn't be anywhere near, and that is spiritual rule in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means almost any kind of person. John Calvin is quick to point out here, 
There are many men of distinguished ability and learning who at the time who were brought to faith, but Paul forbids such persons from being admitted to the office of bishop as soon as they make profession of Christianity. We can imagine that there were men of culture, men of learning, men of education, men of high status within their society who were brought to church. And this is where we begin to even maybe appreciate the, the countercultural force of the qualifications for eldership. Because I haven't brought this up before in our sermon series, but there would be many in the commentator class and the academic class who look at the qualifications here and see basically all that Paul did was rip off the local soldier's manual and baptize it with Christianese. Until you get to this one for sure, and this is no more Christianese, because just uh, we cannot conceive of an antiquity a person of the aristocracy, of the nobility, or even the military being brought into the church and not immediately being made the ruler. It wouldn't have happened. On their own cultural terms, imagine a situation that must have played out over and over again in the early church situation where a man had several slaves and perhaps one of them got converted. And over time, uh, as he lived out Christ before that man, he brought him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, maybe something else was also going on in that man's life as he was attending church that over time, as he grew in spiritual maturity and Christian grace, he was placed in the office of eldership. It created the very awkward and odd situation that the man who owned the slave had to submit to that uh, slave as his master and leader and ruler in the church. You see, the qualification that Paul gives here is countercultural and revolutionary in a sense because it's flipping the cultural paradigm on its head and it's saying that the way that we operate in the church is not the same as it is in the world. You see, in the kingdom of Christ, the rules are different. This qualification broke a mold. The Apostle Paul is laying down here a red marker. No, no new convert, no neophyte, no spiritually immature person, no matter how magnanimous they are, no matter how accomplished they are in life, no matter what their stature or level is in life, has any business in the eldership and rule of the church if they are a neophyte if they are immature. It's not for them, and the reason is because it's dangerous. We see the qualification. Notice now the concern. And not a, a new convert, so that. Notice the purpose statement here. So that is signaling the reason for why this qualification is so necessary to follow. And it's stated in the negative form so that he will not. And so the purpose of the qualification is deliverance. You see, to deliver from a particular hardship or situation which would might make life horrible for that man. And so the thing that he is to not do, the reason he's not to become a leader in the church is because here, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation. You see, there's a motivation here. There is a sequence here. There is a process that the apostle is concerned about that a man who is a neophyte or a convert comes into a position of spiritual rule within the church and the first thing that happens is conceit and the next thing that happens is condemnation. It's as if he ties them together in an inseparable sort of fashion that one leads 
to the other. And this word concede is, is, a, is a very powerful word and one with uh, great spiritual meaning and implication. It means to be blinded or deluded, but also puffed up. If you uh, turn over to 1 Timothy 6, 4, you see the word. Uh, we learn here, he is conceited and he understands nothing. Well, in context, we begin to see uh, who is conceited. In verse 3, if anyone advocates for different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, he is conceited. You see, who is Paul speaking of but the, the false teacher? And I want us to see the qualification of the false teacher. He, he does not say that the false teacher is ignorant. He does not say he's stupid. He does not say he's unskillful. He does not say he's a moron. What he says is he's conceited. And the evidence of conceit is unwilling to be taught. Unwilling to submit to sound words. You see, the root of being a false teacher is not somebody who's just ignorant and doesn't know any better. Sometimes that's the case. But more often than not, the real case is this person is unwilling to submit to the truth. And that leads to what? Conceit. And conceit leads to destruction. You see, pride blinds a man to the truth. And that leads to conceit. And the way this is... Um, Stated here in the original is powerful because uh, it's passive. It's as if conceit seizes the man. It's like an outside force that attacks the man. And the result is he's now characterized by a moral defect which will lead to spiritual failing. Notice here the connection now made in our text. Conceited and fall into. Conceited. And fall into. You see, there is a relationship in the original that says that the falling into condemnation is upon the condition of having become conceited. But it says something very strong here. He falls into the condemnation. The NAS says incurred by the devil. But what is going on here? There's a, there's a couple of different ways to, to, to think about this. There's, there's one way that says that the conceited person will fall into the very same condemnation that is the devil's condemnation. And we know the devil is condemned because of his pride and his arrogance. Uh, Peter teaches in 2 Peter 2.4 that God cast down the fallen angels into hell and he delivered to them a chains of darkness and reserved them for judgment. So there's some people who say that the danger is that this person who is a new convert, when he becomes conceited, will end up sharing the same judgment that the devil has. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something more sinister in our text. Because the strength of this text really is not in the sharing of the same condemnation, but being brought into condemnation. You see, the force of our text here is not just that the neophyte will end up sharing the judgment, the force of the text is that he's being brought into judgment by the devil. And this is what we're talking about, the danger of the office of eldership here, of the orange spiritual target upon the back, the strategy to take out the leadership of the church here. And the person who's prone to this attack, the Apostle Paul says, 
It is the neophyte. It is the convert. It is the unteachable one. It is the unsubmissive one. It is the one who places his opinion and preference above those who taught, who are teaching soundness and truth. And so the strength of our text here is the Apostle Paul is seeing that if you put a new convert or a spiritually immature person in this office, they put themselves directly in the way of conceit. And having become conceited, the devil draws them into his own condemnation. Active attack. And so we get the idea of the hedge against satanic attack. The Apostle Paul is telling us that this is no place for the person who is immature in Christ. It's a principle that's of great importance for us to observe though. Because it's quite often the case that it's not followed in the church. One of the great blessings of a church is new converts. One of the great blessings of the church is a new convert. And new converts are a blessing because they're so full of spiritual life and vitality and energy. They're so alive all of a sudden with the love of Jesus Christ and the awareness of new spiritual realities. And they are in, this, in themselves sensing and experiencing that, that great transition from darkness into life. They're happy and they're joyful and they're thrilled about everything and they just want to get involved. And so what's the first thing that we typically do when we see somebody who's excited and energetic about Christ is we give them something to do. I can't uh, recount how many people I went to seminary with who'd been converted for two to three years. And instead of being back in their church, being catechized by their pastor and learning how to grow up in the faith, they're in a master divinity program holding positions of pastoral internship over people that they were far less mature than. Why? Because we grade excitement very highly in the church. When we see people excited about the faith, we associate that with maturity in the faith. The Apostle Paul doesn't. The Apostle Paul doesn't make that connection. The Apostle Paul says, don't put this person in any position of authority in the church. Let him just grow up. Let him grow up. Because the Apostle says the stakes are just too high. That man will make shipwreck and ruin of his life and maybe others too. Very important qualification here. And it reminds us this morning about the nature of the Christian life. It takes time. It takes time to grow in spiritual maturity. As you fan out from here across the New Testament, you, you think of the ways the Bible teaches that you become mature. One of them is trials. <laughs> One of them is trials. That a man's life is forged and shaped through trials. How about the hardest Bible verse to take joy in? James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. I don't think anybody likes that Bible verse. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into trials. Why? Is this abnormal psychology? No, the answer is because the trial is the very thing that produces endurance. And endurance, when it has its perfect work, produces confirmed faith. 
But you cannot get there without the season of being tried. You cannot get to that confirmed faith and that growth and maturity apart from the difficulty. And that's just something that takes time. It takes time for a person to be forged and shaped through trial. It takes spiritual milk. You'll remember that the preacher talks about this in Hebrews chapter 5, that there's essentially two kinds of meat, uh, uh, substance or spiritual nourishment for believers. Uh, there's, uh, there's spiritual milk, and then there's meat for the ones who are maturing. But it takes time to digest the spiritual milk. You don't just have a couple of bottles of spiritual milk and, and, and move forward to, to, to a steak dinner. It takes a long time to begin to take in the principles of the faith and to, to grasp them. And very often it is the case when you find an energetic and zealous new convert, they'll read 14 books before uh, they're barely five minutes into the faith. And it looks like there's been real growth when all there really has been is an expansion of mental knowledge which the Bible does not equate with spiritual maturity. It's another mistake we often make. Because a person has read a lot and can manipulate and use vocabulary, it means there's maturity. That's not true. It's not true. It takes a long time to digest the simplicity of the Word. In fact, maturity is often exemplified by the fact that the person who's been walking with Christ for a long time and has read plenty understands he didn't know the basic things as much as he should have known them. That's really when we're starting to see maturity happen, when that person says, I need the cross more now than the day when I believed. Another passage which the preacher speaks about is, is growth being this spiritual training to discern good and evil. And the point of it is that it's a number of repetitions. It, it's not just a couple of spiritual sparring sessions. It's, it's the repetition of it over and over and over again that the person begins to be trained to discern and to read between the lines and to examine the whole of the context and, and to realize the application of the Word of God. So this is a very important qualification here because it says that the person that is to take up rule in the church and to become an elder is not just negative, it's not just they're not a new convert, it's that they have the, the strength and the stability of life uh, to anchor that congregation and to engage in spiritual over, uh, overwatch that's useful to the rest of the saints. And that takes a little bit of time and preparation and so here the admonition of the apostle is the person that would long for this office would, would be the kind of person who's seeking to continuously cultivate spiritual maturity and not cut short the seasons of learning in order that they may grow more firm and solid. And that's essential because that is your shield. That is your shield. That kind of person is, is reinforcing the shield and the hedge of protection about them that prevents them from making ruin of their life and perhaps ruin of others. So the first qualification here, negatively, is not a new convert, not a neophyte, not a spiritually immature person. 
But then there's a second one. Not a hypocrite. Here's the other aspect of this shield or this hedge. And we see the qualification in verse 7. And he must be a, a man of a good reputation with those outside the church. So he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. I think it's important that we, we take note of those first three words. And he must. Because uh, we'll note that we find the very same language in verse 2. An overseer must be. Okay? Without sounding too nerdy, that's the last main verb. It's as if Paul was talking and not taking a breath for five verses. Now as he comes back to the final qualification, he pauses, takes a breath, and, and states another verb, and it's the same one. And so most scholars say when they look at that, is that they say that the qualification, first of all, in verse 7, is really sort of the capstone. When you think of this idea, an overseer must be above reproach, they would say this is the capstone. But they would also say that the way you learn to evaluate whether a person here is of a good reputation is, do they fill in all of the blanks of the qualifications that have been specified beforehand? So the reputation that the Apostle Paul is saying that you must have, that is testified to by those who are outside, is the very reputation which is spelled out in the series of qualifications that preceded, okay? And so this is a very important verse because it's not just the end and the capstone. Well, it's also the, the, the means by which the outsider is able to give confirmation that you are indeed qualified for this office. So let's look at it here. It's to be a good reputation. And the word reputation is witness or testimony. So it slips into the, the idea of eyewitness or firsthand knowledge. In other words, it's the kind of knowledge of your life, the kind of quality of the estimate of who you are that can only be made by somebody who's regularly around you. Think of that. The average person who works outside of the home spends a vast majority of their life around other people, right? You don't, maybe we could say this unfortunately, you don't spend your life around church people, do you? You don't work around church people. Probably most of you work around unbelievers. I would say that's probably the rule of thumb for most of us in here. We spend our time working around people who have faith in name only or no faith at all. And one of the strangest that, that we can think of is the Apostle Paul says, their testimony matters more than the testimony of the church. I hope that blows you away. Because the preposition here means testimony from. Notice it says, who is giving the testimony? It says, those who are outside. That means they are not members of the church. They make no allegiance to Christ. They have no Christian profession. In the apostles' context, it ensured they were pagans. And the most astonishing thing I, can't, I think I can think of, the most astonishing thing in the entire list here, is the Apostle Paul says the person who is in the position to evaluate you and give credible, corroborating testimony is the unbeliever that you work next to. Now, that should either encourage you or make you a little afraid. 
Who are you at work? The point is to say that the unbeliever has enough of a basic sense of morality because they've been made in the image of God that when they see you at action, it registers on their conscience, whether it's moral or immoral. He may know nothing really in detail about your beliefs. But you announce to somebody, I'm on the side of Jesus Christ, it's not a believer, guess what? They got gigantic Coke bottle glasses on and they're looking straight through them, man. They can see you and they're watching you. Because the unbeliever wants nothing more than to see you be inconsistent. The unbeliever wants nothing more than to see you be inconsistent in your faith. And so this is the situation that Paul puts us in as we're thinking about the eldership. It asks each and every person that says, I sure think Christ is calling me to it to say, well, how do I behave at work? How do I behave in my neighborhood? How do I behave wherever I go and spend my time around people? What do the people to the left and the right of me think of who I am? And believe me, that's not easy to build that credibility around those people. It takes a long time. But I got to thinking about that and I realized something. It's not unique to the person who would be an elder. It's to all believers. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or you're old, it is all the same qualification. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10, aspire to lead a quiet life that you may walk properly towards those who are what? outside your Christian faith according to the word of God is to be consistent so that when it's measured by the unbeliever even though they really have no sense of what Christianity is they can at least look at you and say wow that doesn't look like my pagan friends this looks different You see, all believers would have a concern for how they adorn the gospel. If you've been bathed in Christ's precious blood, you are called to adorn the gospel in your life. Do you do that? Do you do that? You see, we're good at drawing a a sacred secular dualism, even if we can sniff it out a mile away theologically and disagree with it in principle. But we're also good living inconsistently. We're good at saying we know that you're not supposed to behave differently in church and in the worship than you do at work or in your neighborhood. But we're also sometimes not really good at following through on that. And so this morning, this is a confrontation to all of us that we're called to be on our self-watch to make sure that the way we live, that when the watching world sees it, they would be able to say of you, you must be a Christian. Because I haven't seen people act like that. You must be saved by the gospel of Christ because there is something different about you. 
people of God, let's be astonished and amazed and really sit here and be moved by the fact that this final qualification puts it in the hand of the unbeliever to say yes. Your life matches your profession. And that reputation is bound up with all of this stuff we're talking about here. Husband of one wife, are you sexually faithful at work and around people that you know aren't believers? Do you talk and act in a way that would give them a sense that you are faithful to that principle? Or do they think of you as somebody who's just like them? Temperate, prudent, respectable, pugnacious, not pugnacious, being gentle, free from the love of money. When they see how you run your house, what do they think of it? Does it look like a Christian home, something the unbeliever is not used to? Or does it look just like theirs? See, all this is in view here. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us, those who seek an excellent office must be seeking excellent qualifications. And you need to be able to show this in your life. Across the board, wherever you go. It's a high calling. It's a high standard. But I think it's an important. Because I don't think that a person can cover themselves. That would take a a pathological person I've never seen before. Because usually you can find somebody who's hiding, but somebody knows it. Somebody knows it. And so that brings us now into the concern here. Because remember, we're thinking about building up this hedge around that man. Because the bullseye is going to be on his back no matter what. But that bullseye is going to be a brighter color of orange if he's a hypocrite. Look at verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that, here's our purpose statement again, he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now there's two things that we have to be worried about. The reason why having this good reputation around those who are unbelievers is so that you won't fall into reproach. What does reproach mean? Insult, disgrace, contempt. Who's doing the reproaching, by the way? The unbeliever. The unbeliever is the one doing the reproaching and the insulting. Put a believer's name out there around the people who he works with and listen real carefully. What do they say? If the unbelieving people are told that you just became a leader in the church, do they laugh and do they scorn or they say, I could could see that. He's a man of prudence, fair, careful, just, temperate, consistent. You see, the reproach comes from the world and the reproach is to cast contempt upon not just you, but the church. And above all, Christ. If this is the God whom you believe in, and it doesn't constrain you to to live your life any differently, it casts light on everything that you say you believe about Jesus. I I remember years ago, listening to this man at the family at a conference talk about how uh, this lady couldn't figure out why she couldn't ever keep her jobs. She showed up late every day. And when she came in, she hauled in the family Bible on a wagon. 
She sat at her desk and wasted her time all day, engaged in gossip, and never did anything really that was related to her job and couldn't figure out why she kept getting fired. You see, there's some people who cloak what they do in Christianity or pretend it, but when the world looks at that, they don't find that to be compelling at all. They view that as inconsistent and hypocritical. But if you take away the family Bible and you take away all the rest and you just live absolutely like everybody else you work around, how much more is there this contempt and this reproach, not just for you, but to the Jesus you believe in the church you're a part of? Because the reproach falls on the church because those people believe they should have known. I'll agree with you that the world sometimes is better at sniffing out hypocrisy than we are. Maybe because we're afraid of not wanting to sniff too far because of our own inconsistencies. But the world is really good at sniffing out uh, inconsistencies in us. They look for it, and they have a, a keen sense of smell and sight for it. That's what the apostle is saying. Make sure your conduct is as solid gold as you said it was. But it gets more dangerous than the reproach of the world because notice finally, so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And this is really quite terrifying because the apostle here portrays the devil as a hunter. And you're the prey. That's exactly what this metaphor is about. The devil is the hunter and you're the prey. You're the one wearing the bright orange vest He can see you from a mile away, and the idea here is laying a trap that is uh, camouflaged and stealthy, and it captures you by surprise. You see, the whole design of it is dark and dangerous. It's to draw you into condemnation and complete spiritual ruin. And how does he do that? The devil lays the trap just according to your hypocrisy. The trap is just according to your hypocrisy. And so here Paul says, let's put a hedge about those who would rule. Let's put a hedge about the church. Let's put a hedge about the gospel. Let's reinforce against this satanic attack. And the way we do that is we make sure that those who have the rule in Christ's church and who bear His authority and fulfill their obligations in His name are consistent with what they say they are. I think as we look back over the list, this is one that's very searching. This is one that's uh, very sobering to think of. It's one thing to do the checklist approach, but when you take it all in and you say, really, am I this person? That's when you begin to be sobered and to wonder. But Paul says it's so important because if we don't take that kind of care and concern, we're calling a man to his own ruin. All of this, but I'll tell you this, 50% to almost two-thirds of the people I went to seminary with are no longer in the ministry. That's a high, high number. Estimates are that people who go into the ministry last no more than 10 years at the most. More than 75% are out of it in time. And elders, it's just as high. Why? Because this spiritual warfare is true. 
this warning here is so profound. It is like a punctuation mark at the end of a list of difficulties already. But one of the things that's so important about this list is, first of all, it tells us how we know how to evaluate somebody for leadership in the church. We know how to. Is a man above reproach? Is he a husband of one wife? Is he controlled in his behavior? Is he able to teach? Is he free from rancor? Is he not covetous for money? Is he a leader at home? Is he maturing in faith? Is he reputable among the unbelieving acquaintances he has? We know what the qualifications look like. Yet, we find them difficult. As is uh, my practice throughout this series, I consulted all kinds of old commentators, benefited greatly from them. Quite often, Matthew Henry would be one I would think about and ponder longer than others and Calvin. But here's his quote at the end of his exposition of the qualifications. He he puts it like this, and I got to tell you, it, it was really wonderful to read. What great reason we have to cry out as Paul does. Who is sufficient for these things? What piety, what prudence, what zeal, what courage, what faithfulness, what watchfulness over ourselves, our appetites and our passions over those under our charge. I say, what holy watchfulness is necessary in this work? You say, preach it, Brother Henry. He goes on to say, Have not the best qualified and the most faithful and conscientious ministers just reason to complain against themselves? So much is necessary by qualification and so much is necessary to be done. What shall they do? What shall we be? That's honest. Helpful. Challenging, necessary. But just to lift us all out of despair. (laughs) The encouragement. We have Christ's gracious word of promise. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end. And if he be with us, he will fit us for our work in some measure and will carry us through the difficulties with comfort, graciously pardon our imperfections and reward our faithfulness with a crown of glory that fades not away. Men, this is your solace and your encouragement. There's enough blood of Jesus Christ to cover over all of your sins. There is enough grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is enough strength of the Holy Spirit who is Christ with you even unto the end that should you sense a stirring and a call to this excellent office in the pursuit of these excellent qualifications that Christ won't fail. You will. But Jesus will not. And so should a man refuse to seek this excellent work, And these qualifications? No. He should not. Even though he says fearfully and wholeheartedly and sincerely with the Apostle Paul with not a note of hypocrisy, who is sufficient for these things? Well, then what does he do? He runs to Jesus Christ. He runs to the cross. He seizes the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the proclamation of these qualifications is not a call to discouragement. It's not. It's a call to instruction and to awareness, but above all, to cultivation and the seeking of the grace of Christ. So I have sought to challenge every single Lord's Day. Men, you need to seek what's excellent. Men, you need to seek an office that's excellent. Men, you need to seek qualifications that are excellent. And you may say back to me, Pastor Sautel, I don't know. And I'd say that's just fine. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's not. But if you're not a new convert and you're not a complete hypocrite, then you should consider this. And he'll make his will known. You may learn that it's not now, but also not never. You may learn that his will is for you to be a deacon, which is a high and holy and honorable office. And you also may learn not ever. That's okay too. Because whether you ever take up this excellent work, you're still called to these excellent qualifications. And just imagine how your life will be blessed if these adorn you. If these excellent qualifications adorn you in some measure by the grace of Jesus Christ, imagine how they will make your life better. They will make your marriage better. You will be a better husband. You will be a better father. You will be a better grandfather. You will be a better servant. You will be a better brother and sister in Christ to everyone in this room. The more you seek these things that are excellent by the grace of Christ, the more all of us are blessed. And so, people of God, one last time, I commend you to the consideration of these great qualifications and to the consideration of call to this excellent office. Because I know that everyone who at least gives it that consideration is going to add to their own blessing, to the blessing of this congregation and to the glory of Jesus Christ.